Amen. Amen. We're going to have a seat. Let me invite you to get your Bibles out and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we're going to continue to worship our great and glorious Savior through the preaching and the proclamation of his word. Uh, and as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 2, let me just begin by asking this question. Have you ever found yourself looking at a, at a box or the packaging of some product and you find yourself reading a warning uh, on that label and you find yourself, thing, find yourself thinking, why is this warning on this box? Like what fool did this thing that made the company put this warning on this particular item? For example, on some bottles of bleach, they'll tell you not to drink it, which means some moron at some point in time was drinking it, right? Or there are certain irons that you can buy that tell you not to iron your clothes with your, uh, w while you're wearing your clothes. Um, I, I, these are real things. Um, this was, I think, the, the, the most head-scratching of all of them, uh, a fish hook that said dangerous if swallowed. It's kind of the whole point, right? Like that's how you catch fish. And, and sometimes we hear this and we think, these people exist in society? Now, in as much as there's plenty of warnings that are foolish and silly and utterly ridiculous, there are other warnings that are crucial and needed. There are warnings that prevent legitimate disaster, and they spare us from very real danger and harm. Imagine you're driving down a highway, and on the side of the road, you see a warning sign telling you that the bridge around the corner is out. That's a warning that you want to heed. Maybe you go to the beach. And there's a sign on the beach that says strong undercurrent, and you want to heed that warning so you're not swept away to your death. Right, some warnings are very needed, and the text in Hebrews chapter 2 today offers us a warning that is very needed. Because what the text is going to do is it's going to describe the danger of spiritual drift that comes when we fail to pay close attention to what God's Word is telling us. In fact, that's what God's Word is going to lead us to this morning. It's this idea right here, that we pay close attention to God's Word to avoid spiritual drift in our lives. That we we pay close attention to God's word to avoid spiritual drift in our lives. That is what Hebrews 2 is going to drill into us over and over and over again this morning. And so, loved ones, I think before we go any further, we do well to stop, to ask the Lord to help us pay close attention to his word and what he wants to say to us so that we are hearing his word and we are avoiding the very real danger of drift in our lives. So why don't you join me as we pray, and then we'll get in here to Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, gracious and good, Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for how your word uh, gives a, a clear path. God, how your word leads us forward, how we are guided and directed by you, by and through your word. And so, Father, I pray that in these next few moments that you would help us to pay close attention to what you're saying. God, that we would hear your very words for what they are, your very words. God, that we would submit our lives to the truth of your word. God, that we would uh, respond accordingly to whatever it is that you are calling us to uh, here this morning. Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning, God, we're praying for Church of the Redeemer and for Pastor Robert Browning. God, we thank you for that body of believers. God, we're praying that they would pay close attention, careful attention to your word in the same way that we desire. God, we long to pay close attention to your word. So we pray that you would help us. God, that your word would be authoritative over us. 
and that we would be paying much closer attention to what we've heard from you. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Pay Attention, Don't Drift. Pay attention, don't drift, right? That we pay close attention to God's word to avoid spiritual drift in our lives. Now, structurally, Hebrews chapter two breaks down like this. In verse one, you're gonna see both the warning and the consequence of failing to heed that warning. Uh, And then you're gonna see uh, expanded on in verses two through four. And then the rest of the chapter in verses five through 18 is really an exhortation from the author of what it looks like for you and I to continue in Jesus. it's very much tied to uh, the warning and the, the, the impending consequence that comes when we fail to heed that warning. So let's begin with this thought, looking at verses uh, one through four of Hebrews chapter two. This is the warning, and it's this, that we pay attention to God's word. Look at your Bibles. Hebrews two, verse one says this, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Right, so, so right out of the gate, we see the warning, we've got to pay attention to God's word, the consequence, we're going to drift if we don't, right? And that lays the groundwork for everything that's coming. And this is the first of five warnings that show up in the book of Hebrews, and each of the warnings that show up are cautioning us of the various dangers and pitfalls that attempt to lure us away from following Jesus. And so right out of the gate, what we see is this idea here, we must pay attention to God's word. That we as people have to be people who are paying attention to God's word. And church, don't lose sight of the context, right? In chapter one finished with the author quoting seven different references in the Old Testament, right? So, so immediately after he's quoted all these texts from the Old Testament, he's saying we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. He's referencing, hey, you better be paying attention to the Bible. And in fact, he used the Bible, the Old Testament, to make his point. And he's saying, pay attention specifically to the word, to what God has said. Pay attention. That word, pay attention, it's, it's actually a nautical term. Right? It has to do with sailing or boats. And here's what it means. It, it, it means literally to secure an anchor or to hold the course. Which that, that, that gives us a helpful image, doesn't it? It gives us some helpful perspective as we think about this, this boat that's anchored or this boat that continues uh, to stay on course, it's being directed uh, as it's moving uh, through the lake or over the ocean or whatever the case may be. But it also speaks to us, right? It speaks to us in the fact that we, we need to be secured to something. That if we're honest, we're prone to drift, that we need an anchor to secure us and to steady us. And God's word is that anchor, And what you have to remember, these people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they're being pressured, they're being persuaded to renounce the gospel. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 pay attention. Not to what they're saying, pay attention to what God is saying. That's the anchor, that's the mooring that's going to prevent you from slipping away or drifting away. In fact, this is what Jesus said in John 8, right? When he said that if you abide in my words, you're truly one of my disciples. That we have to be paying attention to God's word. That God's word is the anchor that keeps you and I from drifting. That we need the daily word or the daily reminder of God's word spoken into our lives, which is why our our, our own personal Bible reading is so important. We need the weekly uh, reminder of the gathering of God's word preached to us. And that's why this is such an important function for us. We need God's word to guide and direct us through the various decisions and circumstances of our lives. And we need that for multiple reasons. Let me give you two. 
Here's two reasons why we need the reminder of God's word. We need God's word because we're prone to forget it. We just are. We're prone to forget God's word. That's, that's what happens to us. Now here, I'll, I'll just be really candid, right? The nature of my job requires that I spend a lot of time reading and studying the Bible. And so, so just see, I'll walk you through the preparation of preaching a book of the Bible. So I started reading Hebrews probably like in March of this year. For months, I'm reading the book of Hebrews, right? Just in a broad sense. And then as we get a little bit closer, I'm diving deeper in uh, to the text. Um, and, and then there's, there's different points, right? As you're reading and you come across something and you go, oh, I'll never forget that. And then what happens? You forget that, which is why I write notes in my Bible. I'd encourage you to do the same because you're like me. We're prone to forget, right? We, we, we need God's word because we're prone to forget what's in here, right? And so paying attention, paying close attention to what's in God's word helps to address and combat our very real forgetfulness. But, but here, here's another reason we need to pay close attention to God's word is because God's word, we need God's word to address our present circumstance, you, you, right, sometimes you, you read a verse and it catches you in a way that maybe it has never caught you or grabbed you before. Right, have you ever had that experience? You're reading the Bible and you're like, wait, wait was this in here before? I, I've never seen this. Now, never mind that you've read that text a hundred times prior to that. It's not that the verse wasn't there. It's just that something going on in your life made that stand out in a way that it hadn't the first 99 times that you read that. Right? And this is how God's Word is speaking into our life on a regular basis. Right? It, it, it's informing us of what we need to be reminded of. And so we need to be people who keep coming back to the Bible. So church, here, here's the question for all of us. Just ask this of yourself. Am I paying close attention to God's Word? Am I paying close attention? Am I returning over and over and over again to what God has said in His Word? Or is there a more casual, apathetic approach in your life towards God's word that is opening you up to the possibility or the potential of drift. Right? The warning is we have to pay attention to God's word. And then notice also in verse one, we see the consequence. Right? Here's the second aspect of this warning, the consequence, and it's that we seek to avoid spiritual drift. Right? He says we, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Right, so the consequence of not paying close attention, that I'm subject to drift away from the word. Now, now that word drift, that's also a nautical term, right, having to do with sailing. And you know what that word means? This is stunning. It means that you're going to drift. <laughs> like it's, there it is, right? It's the same word that you, you see in English. But it's just this idea of that we're off course, that we're drifting away. But, but that also gives us a helpful image, doesn't it? Because when you think about this, think about an unanchored boat on the lake or on an ocean. That boat is beholden to the wind or to the current or whatever it may be. And off it just begins to go, right away from the dock or away from the shore. And it just begins to meander out, however the wind or the current chooses to take it. And as is often the case, what you have to understand, church, is that drift, drift is rarely a dramatic move, right? Drift almost always is going to be subtle. It's going to be incremental. And, and a lot of times it's unrecognized, at least initially. And that's the very subtle yet dangerous reality of drift is oftentimes you don't even realize you've drifted until you've moved so far from the source, all of a sudden you look up and the shoreline's not where you thought it was. It's much further away, right? You've drifted. And so listen, this is why, right? This is why things that are small or seemingly inconsequential, this is why they matter. 
Because one compromise at a time eventually culminates in departure. Did you hear that? One compromise at a time will eventually culminate in complete and total departure. That's why we've got to be able to identify the currents and the winds of our day so that we're not, we're not liable to be swept away by it. Right? The, the, the warning is pay attention because the consequences we're going to drift. And so then in verses 2 through 4, the author gives two different reasons to substantiate the warning and the consequence. Verse 2, let me read 2 through 4 here, and I'll point out the two, the two reasons. It says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Right, so there's two arguments. The first argument in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 is really from the Old Testament law, right? This message that was delivered by angels, right? Remember, the angels and the prophets delivered the law, and it was reliable. And every transgression received a just retribution. He's saying even the law, which is inferior to Jesus, even the law proves that this drift won't go unpunished, that there will be a just retribution that comes from this. And we see this all over the Old Testament. Right? When, when, when people rebel against God, God's word, bad things happen. Korah's rebellion. We don't want to follow your guy anymore. And then the earth swallowed them alive. That would have been a crazy moment, right? That's what we see in Numbers 16. Or, or, or how about Uzzah, right? As they're bringing the ark back into Israel. And there would be a strong, uh, strong command from God, don't touch the ark. Uh, ark shakes on the cart. What does he do? Touches it. Then what happens? Tell me. Dead on the spot, right? Like bad things happen when you disobey God's word. Aaron's sons are offering that unauthorized or strange fire in Leviticus 10. Dead, consumed by that fire. The point being this, right? Departure from God's word brings about God's judgment. So he said, man, even the Old Testament bears this out. And so verse 3 summarizes that, well, like how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's like, if the Old Testament bore this out, it's only going to get worse for us in the New Testament. And the second argument has to do with witnesses. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. In fact, he gives three distinct witnesses. One of them is Jesus. One of them is, is, is basically the disciples, or all who heard. And then one is God, who's bearing witness by signs and wonders and miracles. Those are three pretty good witnesses, by the way. The middle one, not as much. But the whole Jesus and God is witness. You can't get any better. And essentially what he's saying is you can't plead ignorance to this. Jesus has told you this, God has told you this, and the disciples have, have, have attested to this as well. And so church, we need to pay attention to God's word. Are you hearing the warning, the very serious warning? Do you understand the seriousness? Do, do, do you see your own proclivity or the own potential in your own life for drift? And, and if you're sitting here uh, wrongly but arrogantly thinking, that will never happen to me, all you have to do is look at the Christian landscape in the last 10 years in our country and realize it could happen to anybody. Because I'm, I'm not talking about non-believers. I'm talking about people who profess to love Jesus and yet in so many different ways, absolute departure from the gospel. So here's one of a number of examples, right? Let's redefine sexuality. Now, I'm not talking about society. I'm talking about in the church. How does that happen? Because we don't pay close attention to what God has said. 
this substitute of the social gospel for the true gospel. How does that happen? Because we don't pay close attention to what God has said. This whole deconstruction, deconversion nonsense that's going on all over the place. How does that happen? We don't pay attention. We're not paying close attention to what God has said. So just look at your own life. Just examine your own life. Am I hearing the warning? And then ask yourself this, is there drift in my life? Is there any, you look up, did the shoreline get a little further away than you thought it was? And here's what you got to understand. If there's drift in your life, do you know what the corrective measure is? It's that you pay closer attention to what God has said. That's the corrective measure, that you get back into the Bible and you let God correct where you've begun to drift. Like I love the story. Remember King Josiah in the Old Testament came to power at the age of eight? It's kind of young for a king, if we're just being honest, but that's how it played out. And so eventually, what do they do? They're cleaning out the temple because that had not been uh, certainly a point of emphasis for his father. What do they find in the temple? They find the word of the Lord. And the priests bring it to Josiah and they're like, hey, we want to read you this. And Josiah's like, get everyone together. They need to hear this. See, the corrective measure is that we just pay careful attention to what God has said. Church, that's the warning. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. God help us, God help us, that we would be people who are paying attention to God's word. Now here's the exhortation. Starting in verse 5, through the rest of the chapter, through verse 18, we get an exhortation. The exhortation is this, that we continue in Jesus. And there's actually three very distinct elements uh, around the person of Jesus that unfold from verses 5 through the rest of the chapter. But, but don't, don't separate these things. Don't divorce uh, what's happening in verses 5 through 18 from verses 1 through 4 because the exhortation is tied to the warning. Essentially what the author of Hebrews is going gonna, is gonna to say, let me tell you why Jesus is worth paying much attention to um, and how Jesus is going to help keep you and I from drifting. So the exhortation, we continue in Jesus. Three distinct exhortations. Here's the first, look at verses 5 through 9. And it's this, that Jesus' subjection gives us, gives us life. Jesus' subjection gives us life. Now, in these uh, handful of verses, the text focuses very much on the subjection of Jesus. Let me read all of it to us, and then we'll walk through it. Verse 5, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. I love this. This is one of my favorite uh, citations in all the Bible. Here's a biblical author going, hey, I don't know where this is. I just know it's somewhere in the Bible. It has been testified somewhere. Praise God for the author of Hebrews. I know it's in there. It's somewhere. All right. And then he quotes from Psalm 8, which is what Rob read uh, earlier in the service. And it says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And, and, and now the author begins to run with this concept of subjection. He says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. And yet here's the dilemma, right? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the problem. And, and we, we would affirm that today. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus' subjection gives us life. Now, two things I want you to note here in verses 5 through 9. The first is this. Just make note of this, the chaos in creation. There's a chaos that, 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 that exists in creation. 
And so, so the author not only takes us to Psalm 8, but Psalm 8 is very much meant to run us back to the creation mandate all the way back in Genesis 1. Right? So multiple references helping us to be reminded that when God created uh, the heavens and the earth, when God created humanity, that he gave dominion to mankind. Right? God told mankind to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to have dominion over the earth. And so the, the, the author is returning the readers uh, to that dominion mandate that was supposed to be fulfilled by us. What's the problem? Hasn't been fulfilled by us, has it? That's why he says at the, verse eight, at the end of verse 8, we, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And really the chaos in creation, right, this lack of subjection functions to serve as a reminder that this fractured state we live in, we live in because of our sin and our rebellion against God. And true subjection was lost and forfeited at the fall. And so, so what the author is highlighting for us here is our inability to do what we were called to do. And it's also highlighting this, this incredible dilemma we have in our sin. And so how is it remedied? It's remedied through Jesus. Look at verse 9. In fact, what we see, it's remedied, remedied specifically through Jesus' glory in all things, in his death. Right? So you've got this weird contrast that's playing out. It says, we see him a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. How was he crowned with that glory and honor? Well, because of the suffering of his death. And so simultaneously, you see both the exaltation of Jesus as well as the humiliation of Jesus. And they're, they're, they're like playing together. And you're like, how do these things go together? How, how does this work? And it's similar to John's gospel. Remember in John's gospel, this phrase that John employed in multiple places where he talked about Jesus being lifted up, right? Which was simultaneously a reference both for Jesus in his death, but also for Jesus to be exalted. So you have this almost paradoxical element of glory and honor being coupled with suffering and death. And it's Jesus' glory in his death, and that's what brings about our life, that subjection is going to come through Jesus, redeeming all of creation, uh, most, most notably us, through his death. This is Jesus' glory in his death. Now, two things that I think should jump out at us in this text, and I want to just highlight both of them for a moment. First of all, make note of this. Make note of Jesus as our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. I love the poetic way that he says this. The end of verse 9, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He doesn't just taste death. Uh, he succumbs to death. And he does so, so that you and I are liberated from the wrath that we deserved in our sin. Right? This is a reference to Jesus taking our place. Jesus is going to bear the wrath that we deserve. He's our substitute. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 5. Right? For, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he goes on later in Romans 5, and he says that God shows his love for us in this. So while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us when we could have done nothing for ourselves. We were dead in our sin. So Jesus is our substitute. He's our atonement that we could never be for ourselves. But then notice also, we see here the humility of Jesus. I mean, this is an incredible thing. Made lower than the angels. He's going to suffer. Um, he's he's going to taste death. And he does all of that to remedy us for our sin. Now, now probably the, the ultimate 
text in the New Testament of this would be Philippians 2, right, where it talks about Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, uh, obedient even to the point of death. But when we come to these texts and we see the humility of Jesus, man, that should be jarring to us. That Jesus would forego so much. That Jesus would endure so much. He, he owed nothing to anybody. And yet subjected himself to, to such humiliation and shame. Namely and specifically so that you and I could be reconciled to God. So here's the question we got to wrestle with. How willing are you, loved one, to respond in humility to whatever God has for you? How willing are you to be made low? How willing are you to be humbled? How willing are you to be scorned or mocked for Jesus' glory and for his name's sake? Further, what areas in your life may Jesus be calling you to humility? In what aspect, what, 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 what dynamic is Jesus calling you to lay down your life, to give up of something, to make much of him? Now, now here, listen. Avoid the temptation in this moment to start thinking about your spouse or your kids or your coworkers and all the ways that they need to be made humble. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. What are the ways that you need to be brought low and made humble? Jesus' glory in his death. Okay, so how does, how does Jesus' subjection, how, how does that help us to pay attention? How does that help us to not drift? Let me give you two ways that we see this. First of all, this, that we live faithfully in this present age, knowing that not everything is going to be put into subjection to Jesus, at least not presently. Right? That's the reality of our present state. That's that tension of the already, not yet. Yes, Jesus is already victorious, but he has not yet put all things into subjection uh, under him. It just explains where we find ourselves. And so in response to that, we're going to persevere, we're going to press on, we're going to hold fast in spite of the chaos of this world. But in as much as we think about that, here's the tension we hold this in, that we live in the hope of the future, knowing that a day is coming when all things will be put into subjection under Jesus. Amen? Right, that's, that, that's what we're looking forward to. So we can't be uh, unduly influenced by the things of today that are attempting to uh, undermine or diminish what, what is awaiting us in eternity. Something far better is coming. Something far better is coming. It's just not yet. So when I, when I was 13 years old, um, I, I, made a, an, I made a number of mistakes when I was 13. But when I was 13 years old, probably one of the most painful mistakes I made was I attempted to defy gravity on a bike, um, which went very poorly uh, and absolutely destroyed my shoulder, busted my collarbone. In fact, they had to bolt it back together. Uh, it was so broken, all kinds of ligament damage, shoulder was totally separate. It was a mess. Um, now, as a teenager who played baseball and basketball, not having range of motion was a real problem. And so I remember being really, really frustrated in the whole rehab process, and it was going too slow, and I couldn't do it. And so I had to do this stupid exercise where you'd put your fingers on the wall because you just couldn't lift your arm. I could, and you'd have to walk them up the wall, and it'd be, you'd get to like here, and you'd be like, ah, it's excruciating. You couldn't do it anymore. And I remember being so frustrated and telling the doctor, I'm never going to have my range of motion back. And he just said to me, Mike, it won't always be like this. It is right now, but it won't always be like this. Church, it won't always be like this. It is right now, right? Our, our, our present state is our present state. And our present lives is our present lives. But it won't always be like this. 
And so pay attention to the word. Let God's word anchor you in the truths that firstly, Jesus is going to bring all of creation into subjection under him. It won't always be like this. Praise God for that. Secondly, here's what we see in verses 10 through 13. Second exhortation. And it's this, that Jesus' suffering makes us family. Jesus' suffering makes us family. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Right there it is. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Here's what's going on here, right? Jesus' suffering makes us family. And there's a number of different familial words that are coming out in uh, the text. Verse 10, sons. Verse 11 and 12, brothers. Verse 13, children. There's this theme of family that exists. But what I want you to note that it's the suffering that Jesus endures that makes us family. That's what it says in verse 10, right? That he's made perfect through suffering. So notice, first of all, that we are adopted into the family of God. You and I are adopted into the family of God. Don't miss this profoundly beautiful image that, that's unfolding in the text here. Jesus, look what it says in verse 11. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. So Jesus is calling us brothers and sisters. Here's what the text is saying. Jesus is our older brother. Now, most of you, if you have older brothers, you're like, praise God, we get a major upgrade. Okay? If you're an older brother, maybe you don't want to relinquish that role. I, I don't know what to do with that, okay? But he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I family. Wrap your mind around that. Jesus is not ashamed to call us family. Um, do you have any family members in your family that are a little harder to claim as your own? Maybe a little reluctant to be like, yeah, we share DNA. So I have two younger brothers. I have an older sister, uh, and then I have two younger brothers. Uh, Joey is about five and a half years younger than I am. Sean is almost nine years younger than I am. Uh, and so particularly growing up, that kind of gap, right? Younger brothers, we know this unequivocally. All younger brothers are annoying. That goes without saying, okay? Um, but, but, but that kind of gap at times, sometimes your family can be hard to claim. Uh, and so, so Joey, even though he's five and a half years younger uh, than I am, Joey was very active athletic. Uh, Joey was very funny. He was very charismatic, like he could win a room. So it was fairly easy to claim Joey. Sean, not as much, okay? Sean, Sean was just kind of goofy and odd. Uh, we all grew up playing sports. Sean didn't play sports. Um, hygiene wasn't really high on Sean's priority list. Uh, my sister affectionately referred to him as the dirty tennis ball. Uh, that was Sean. Um, and then he had really weird and odd interest, most notably that he loved snakes, like loved snakes. So Sean's five years old and he's telling everyone, when I grow up, I'm going to be a herpetologist. And we're all like, what is that? Anyone know? 
someone who studies snakes and amphibians, right? And, and then we had, we had this encyclopedia set because that was what you had before the internet. That was actually pre-internet, was encyclopedias, right? So we had this encyclopedia set. And if you took the S encyclopedia out and just laid it down, it would open to the snake page. And all those pages were stuck together where Sean had spilled drinks on it and food stains and all that stuff. He, he was just odd and he was weird. And listen, he was hard to claim as a brother. Now, church, hear me when I say this. All of us are like Sean when it comes to our older brother, Jesus. But hear what God's word says. He's not ashamed to call us brother or sister. That's a remarkable truth. And he's not ashamed of us, not because of anything we've done, but look at what it says right before that. He sanctifies us, right? He makes us holy. He makes us righteous. And that's why he doesn't have to be ashamed of us. It's an incredibly beautiful reality. We're family. Don't miss this. We're family because Jesus suffered and died so that we could be reconciled to God. It wasn't just kind of this casual thing. No, no, Jesus had to shed blood for this to be the case. So make note of the second item, that suffering is the pathway to glory. Do you hear that? Suffering is the pathway to glory. Now, it talks about Jesus being made perfect through suffering. It's not that Jesus was lacking in his morality or his character. That's a reference to the completion of his office or his role as Savior. But here's what I don't want you to miss. Don't miss this. Suffering is the pathway to glory. It's true for Jesus, and it's true for you and I, church. Suffering is the pathway to glory. And we need to linger here for a moment because uh, we need to make sure we're thinking rightly about this. Uh, because when we fail to think rightly about uh, and we fail to think biblically about suffering, it can become a source of confusion. Um, it might become a source of disorientation. And it may even lead us to a place where we're bitter or, or even have animosity towards God. And it can sabotage our faith. So let me be unflinchingly clear about this. The pathway for the believer to glory runs through suffering. Did you hear that? Because I'm talking to each and every one of you right now. And every time something bad happens, we're like, what's going on? It's because we don't understand what God has told us over and over and over again in the Bible. That's the pathway. That the pathway for the believer runs through suffering. It's not comfort. It's not ease. It's not luxury. It's suffering. And we've got to get our heads right about this. So here, let me take you to two texts, just briefly. Uh, you, can go, you can go do more homework in them on your own. Two texts to help drive this point home. First of all, flip over to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Here's what we find in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll just give it to you in summary. It's this. Our suffering accomplishes God's work in us. Our suffering accomplishes what God wants to do in and through us. It accomplishes God's work in us. Let me read. I'm not going to read all of it. I would encourage you to go read all of it uh, on your own later today. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Jump down to verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see what it's saying right here? The suffering reveals God's power to us, uh, as well as it manifests the life of Jesus through us. This is part of how God is accomplishing his work in us, but he doesn't stop there. Jump down to verse 15. Here's what he says. For it is all for your sake... He's talking to the church. My suffering, don't miss what Paul's saying. My suffering, all for your sake. There's a line none of us like. 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Here's what Paul's saying here, that suffering reveals the gospel to others and it increases all of our thanksgiving to God. So listen to me, listen to me. The suffering, your suffering, maybe even the suffering that you're experiencing right now, it may not ultimately be for your good. It might be for someone else's good. Did you hear that? The suffering that you're experiencing right now, it might not even be for your good. It might be for the good of someone else. In fact, just this week, I was meeting with someone, and they were describing this very difficult situation in their life, and they, they said, I'm having a really hard time seeing the good in this situation. And I had just been reading 2 Corinthians 4, and I'm like, well... It's probably because the good in your situation may not be for you. It might be for someone else. Which, praise God, they received it well. That could have gone off the rails, right? <laughs> Jump down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Ah, I love these verses. These aren't underlined in your Bible. You should fix that right now. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying, guys, it's worth it. This temporary suffering, it's worth it as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And he's saying suffering prepares us for eternity and it helps us to focus on eternal things. COVID for all its terribleness should be driving all of us to a greater and deeper desire for our eternity and what's coming, not where we're at. And so 2 Corinthians 4, part of how this helps us is that our suffering accomplishes God's work within us. Now flip over with me to 1 Peter 4 for a moment. This one is actually going to be a little bit more painful. Here's the second principle that our suffering... Hear this, church. Pay close attention to what God's word is saying. Our suffering is God's will for us to share in Jesus. There's a statement no one likes to hear. Your suffering is actually God's will for you. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I'll prove it. First Peter 4, starting verse 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is where most of us go off the rails. Well, why is something bad happening? God never said that would happen. You've never read 1 Peter. There it is. Here's the response. Not griping and complaining and wondering where God is. Verse 13, you might want to circle this, but rejoice. I'm supposed to rejoice in my sufferings? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, we rejoice as we share in Jesus, and we're glad when his glory is revealed. That's part of what God, God is doing in our suffering, that we get to share in Jesus. Now jump down to verse 19. I'm going to let you breathe for a moment, because this may blow some of you right out of the water. Here's the conclusion, which, by the way, the first four chapters of 1 Peter is pretty much about various forms of suffering. So here's his conclusion, not only on this section, but really the first four chapters of 1 Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering is God's will for you, and suffering allows you to entrust your soul to your faithful creator so that you can continue to do good for him. Suffering is the pathway to glory, and we have to be thinking rightly about this. Okay, so how, how does this help us to pay attention? I didn't necessarily like what we read, Mike. 
I don't know that I really want to uh, go back to those texts and, and read any deeper. Well, here, let me give you two, two ways that this helps us to pay attention. One, don't forget where we started, right? The joy that you are a part of God's family. And not only a part of God's family, but that God's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. God's like, yeah, that's my brother over there. Yeah, that's my sister. And then the other side of this is that we just live in the reality that suffering's the pathway to glory. Let's not be naive to this. Let's not be fools about it. Let's just be honest about it. And so when it comes, and it's going to come, we're not confused by it. We're not thrown off by it. We just come back to the word, and maybe we go to 2 Corinthians 4. Maybe we go to 1 Peter 4. Maybe we come back to Hebrews 2 so that we can pay careful attention to what God has said. And that's what enables us and equips us to move through that season, not drifting away because it got hard, but persevering because it's exactly what God said. Jesus' suffering makes us family. Praise God for that. Here's the final thing. Look at verse 14 through 18. It's that Jesus' sacrifice delivers us from sin. Jesus' sacrifice delivers us from sin. Let me read verses 14 through 16. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's, he helps us. Jesus' sacrifice delivers us. The first thing we see here is that Jesus delivers us. And in fact, he delivers us in two distinct ways. The first way is that Jesus delivers us from the power of death. That's what it says in verse 14. And not only does he deliver us from the power of death, he also in verse 15 is going to deliver us from the fear of death. Question. You know, don't answer out loud, actually. Just to yourself. Are you afraid to die? I mean, honestly, are you afraid to die? And then as you think about that, answer this question, why or why not? Why am I afraid to die? Why am I not afraid to die? And as you ponder that, let me just maybe speak into this for a moment. As a pastor, uh, arguably the most striking thing over these last 18 months with COVID has been watching people who profess to be Christians have this incredibly deep fear of death that gets exposed. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about any of the political aspects of this. I'm talking about people who profess to be Christians, and yet there's this incredible fear of death that they have. Why? Why that fear? Why that response? This is the softest I can say it. Because we don't really believe what the Bible says about death. We don't really believe what the Bible says about eternity. And we don't really believe that when Jesus says that he's better, that we believe it. That's why. We don't believe what God has told us. That's why we're so afraid. And yet, what, the, what, what, what God's word is saying is God uh, not only destroys the power of death, but the, 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 the eternal work of Jesus destroys even the fear of death. And so if you're here and you find yourself deeply afraid of death, you, you got to have an honest conversation of how you really feel about verse 14 and verse 15 and what Jesus is doing in your life. Jesus delivers us from the power of death. Jesus also delivers us, it says in verse 15, from the slavery. Right? This is where he liberates us from our slavery to sin. Right? This is what Jesus is doing in delivering us. Now notice also in verse 17 and 18. Where it says that Jesus is able to help us. It says this, therefore, 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to help us. There's a number of rich theological items that that are being introduced. And at different times in the book of Hebrews, we're going to get to revisit some of them. So some of them I'm just going to touch briefly. But one that that I I just got to spend a moment on here is making sure we understand that the doctrine of Jesus' nature is coming into full view. That Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully man. He's 100% both. And in the early church, there were a number of heresies that tried to emphasize one over the other or, 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 or highlighted this and minimized this. And I'll just tell you that the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man, it's mind-bending in a, in a way that's similar to how the Trinity is mind-bending. Suffice to say that he's both, entirely both, fully both, and so part of what we see here is this, that Jesus is, he's like us. Jesus is like us. Now, loved ones, he, Jesus has to be like us if he's going to be a suitable sacrifice. If he is not fully man, he is not a, a sufficient sacrifice to atone for our sins. Bulls and goats can't do it. Only a sinless man can do it. He has to be fully man. And praise God, he is fully man. So he can take our place. He's like us. And that's high and lofty. But sometimes it's helpful to just be reminded of the simple ways that Jesus is like us. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. There were people that were annoying to Jesus, right? Uh, He was sad, disappointed. But he never responded sinfully. Right? The human experience was not lost on Jesus. Further, there's probably foods that he liked. I I don't know. Maybe he liked all foods. He did make them all. But maybe he didn't. Like, I could just see Jesus eating kale being like, yeah, not my best work, right? Like, I've done better. And maybe sitting there like, guys, I know you're not going to know this, but there's this thing, bacon, it's coming, and it's going to blow everyone's mind. But you just, not today. I don't know. Maybe he just liked it all. I'm sure there were things that he enjoyed, and there were things he probably didn't like. Like, oh, it's laundry day again. I don't like laundry day. But here's the deal. He didn't sin, right? So he's fully like us. But, but, but he didn't sin. And so what this means is that Jesus, right, Jesus is the high priest for us. Right, he's fully human. And so he can fulfill this role. Verse 17, he uses this word, uh, this is a 10-cent word here, propitiation. Now that word, it's actually a rich word. What it means is it's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath fully and completely so that God is satisfied in that sacrifice. See, Jesus offers himself on your behalf and on my behalf. Right? This is the gospel. Jesus gives of himself to atone for our sin. And because he's human, fully human, he's a suitable sacrifice. And then finally, look at verse 18. I'll just make a note of it. We're going to see it in spades here in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 4. But I just want to touch on it here that Jesus helps us in temptation. But he's able to sympathize with us. Right? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's so encouraging. That Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to, be stru- to, to struggle. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with irritating people. Jesus knows what it's like to find himself in conflict. But praise God that Jesus doesn't know what it's like to fail in those moments. And so, loved ones, you have a Savior that knows how you feel in the midst of your struggle. And so go to him with those. 
Don't run from him in that. Run to him in that. He knows exactly how you feel. Jesus' sacrifice delivers us from sin. The warning is that we pay, pay close attention. The consequence is that if we don't, we're going to drift. The exhortation is that we would continue in Jesus. God help us that we would pay attention, that we would pay close attention to what God has said to us. Loved ones, are you allowing God's word to set the direction in your life? Loved ones, are you paying careful attention to what God has said? And loved one, what truth, what truth of Jesus do you need to hear again today to help you pay close attention? Let's pray.